All right, this morning, first hour and second hour is all going to be dedicated to what many consider the most difficult passage in the entire Bible to understand. So whenever we face a passage like this, there's different ways to approach it, right? We can go directly to the passage and start trying to work through it and start trying to just take it apart. What I like to do is, in many cases, go explore every uh, explore things that relate to the passage so that when we get to the passage, we have a better foundation in how to take it apart. I mean, whenever you come to a passage that's considered the most difficult in the entire Bible, you're going to have to at least realize that you're into, you're, we're, we have a difficult task in front of us and start thinking of the different ways to approach it because nobody really understands. That I'll summarize the way one approach to the text is. Are you ready? And this is a direct quote. According to this passage, we need to use money well in order to enter into eternal life. We need to use money well in order to enter into eternal life. Now, as soon as we hear that, what would be our initial thoughts? That's, well, now that's law, that's works, that's something, that's something. But someone obviously looked at the passage, I'm like, well, this passage can only mean one thing. The way we use money determines if we are going to enter into eternal life and you know immediately people are going to reject that. So, so from just from that perspective, if that is at least one hypothesis out there, one of the things we're going to need to do is we're going to spend a lot of time in the New Testament just looking at everything it has to say in regards to which subject? Money. Others, even though they may not go that far, even if they may not go that far, just for example, the subject is money. That's how one summarizes this section of scripture. The subject is money. So everyone seems to agree that at least what? It's about money. So then we're going to have to, so we need to build at least a foundation before we get there. Now, part of me wants to give you the passage, but if I give you the passage, then for the next 10 minutes while I'm talking, none of you are going to be paying attention. You'll all be looking at the passage, okay? So I've learned my lesson not to do that, and then I'll ask a question about 12 minutes in, and then nobody will know what I've talked about for 10 minutes. So we're not going to look at the passage right now, okay? Because because everyone will just sit there and look at it, look at it, trying to come up with what you think is the interpretation. But I don't want I don't want that to happen because we got to build a good foundation before we can take it apart. All right. I want to go to. There's a part of me that wants to skip to. There's like nine verses in this section, and there's a part of me that wants to skip down to the last verse and read it because some people believe that's the key to interpreting the entire passage. But even if I was to read it, then immediately I know what you guys would do. You would do what? You would go back to verse 1 and start reading while I'm, I'm talking. So that will just defeat the entire purpose. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that, okay? So here's what we're going to do. We are going to try our best to spend at least the first hour. The entire first hour is going to be trying to summarize, at least in part, what the New Testament says in regards to money. Because I think if we have that foundation, from a hermeneutical standpoint, what would be my reason, if the passage deals with money, why would I want to spend an entire hour trying to figure out everything the New Testament says in regards to money? What would be my hermeneutical reason for doing that? Right, so in other words, once we know what the New Testament seems to say, that limits then what we can do with the passage, right? That limits us. Because obviously we can't come to a conclusion that does what? As you just said it. Completely contradict everything else. So that's always the key. That's always the way. If you have learned anything in this church, that's always the way to deal with these theological controversies. Right? Here's the controversy. Let's not debate the controversy. Let's go do what? See what everything says. And is that always fun? No, that can be... That can be tedious because we're looking up, you know, 3,000 references to the word Israel. But what's, what blows my mind is you, we can still do this. And then after all of that, still there'll be disagreement, which I'll never understand as long as I live. Because that, that should be impossible, shouldn't it? Right? Now, now there still could be disagreement, but that disagreement would, should be what? 
should be like this. Because there's very little you can disagree with when you've looked at every scripture, right? There, there's very little you can disagree with. So we're going to build the foundation before we get to the passage. Because once we get to the passage, it, almost instantaneously, everyone will have their idea of what it means. But what I want to do is limit all your ideas that you can come up with with what it means, okay? So I don't know if this is an exhaustive list at any point in any time. If you think we miss a verse dealing with money or possessions, by all means, you throw one in, jump in, and we will see what we can do, all right? So let's just start. Let's go to, let's go to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew. I try to put these in some kind of order. Uh, I, I, I relied on a number of different sources, what they thought were passages dealing with money. We may not, we may agree, we may disagree, but that's okay. All right. So Matthew chapter five. Now, as soon as we come to Matthew chapter five, what is the first problem we have when we see that it's in Matthew chapter five? What is problem number one? It's a sermon on the mount. And why is that a problem, ladies and gentlemen? Because there is, well, put it this way. My interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount disagrees with 99% of churches in America, okay? All right, the only people who may agree with me are Lutherans, okay? But most people interpret the Sermon on the Mount as what? This is what you should do, and your obedience to it, either what? Shows you're a Christian or makes you a Christian, right? But in either way, guess what that ultimately says? You have to obey the Sermon on the Mount in order to be a Christian. Everyone says that. Like, you know, that my friends in Nebraska who go to a church in Iowa, and I reviewed uh, some of their sermons on it. Well, his whole point was your obedience to the Sermon on the Mount proves what? The legitimacy of your repentance. So in other words, if you don't obey the Sermon on the Mount, your repentance is not genuine. Therefore, you are not saved. And I'm sitting there listening to it going, does everyone in that church really believe they follow the Sermon on the Mount? Like they've got to be out of their ever living mind. They all need counseling because within the Sermon on the Mount, what does it say? Be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, as soon as I read a verse that tells me to be perfect, what should I probably do? I probably should go, uh, we need a new way of interpreting it. So how do I interpret the Sermon on the Mount? It's God's law. And what does God's law demonstrate to us? We can't do it. Meaning, I need to find someone who did. And that someone who did is the blessed person, really, in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes. That blessed person is Jesus Christ. He keeps the law. He preached it. He kept it. And in Christ, guess what? We keep it in Christ, not, not, not practically in Christ, right? So already immediately, if we come to anything here that has anything to do with money, we, we realize immediately what we're dealing with. So Matthew chapter 5, all right? Matthew chapter 5, we can, I'll just go back to just give us some kind of context. Go to verse 38. You've heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that you resist not Evil. Now, as soon as we read those words, resist not evil, what is immediately what people, do, what do people do? If I was to preach, the Bible says resist not evil, immediately what will I get? Well, it can't mean, and I'll get 30 reasons, 30 different ways that it can't mean this or can't mean that. And why do we immediately do that? We know that we're, we're going to resist evil, right? Someone comes after us, what are you going to do? They're going to fight back. No, he says, so we immediately try to water it down. And why do we water it down? So that we can possibly do what? Obey it. Correct? Resist not evil. Um, uh, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, if I say, hey, that, that seems to in- imply what? A, a form of being passive, right? Being a pacifist. Do not return violence with violence. Now, as soon as I say that, guess what I'll be told? No, 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 no. That's just like if someone insults you, then you don't return an insult with insult. But that doesn't mean if someone comes after you, you can't use your gun and shoot them. It doesn't mean that. Because again, we have to try to make it what? 
doable, right, and manageable, or or because and which is just once again just shows us that no one really takes it serious. If all you're going to do is immediately make it say something that you feel comfortable with, means who's in ultimately in charge of the text? We're in charge of the text, and Jesus Jesus is irrelevant to it. All right. So, and if any man will sue thee at the law and take away that coat, what do you do? You let him have the cloak also. If someone sues you to get one thing, you give them more. Now, this immediately goes to what? Possessions, right? If someone tries to incorrectly take part of your possessions, what does Jesus say your response should be? Give them more. You say, but that's not fair. That's not just. Now, Jesus would be then almost implying that our relationship towards possessions is going to be somewhat radically different, right? He's seemingly to imply that if I lose a possession, I don't care. That, that, he, he's at least hinting at it very early on in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If someone's going to, because what would, what would you do if someone tries to take, sue you? You may be grudgingly give them what they want in the court case, but you definitely are not going to do what? You're not going to give them more. In fact, you're probably going to be very upset in the first place. So immediately, when you read this, what should be your response? Okay, I, this, this, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. That's why, that's why my, I think the only correct interpretation of this is as law. I don't know how people can use this to prove someone's salvation. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Okay, but it gets worse, all right? Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. Now we think we understand the basic context here, at least historically, from what most people say. I have not 1,000% been able to completely prove this, but the argument seems to be that a Roman soldier could compel someone to do what? Carry their gear a mile. And Jesus says, go too. Now, first of all, that's someone who's your enemy. Someone who's oppressing you and you're going to carry their gear two miles. That goes against everything in our nature, right? And so when we, when we preach this, everyone was like, okay, I'm going to try to do this or try, but we water it down to such a level where it's manageable, right? It's, we, because we have to make it manageable in the modern church. This shouldn't be manageable. Jesus is trying to demonstrate that his law is what? Beyond our ability. And I know that that goes against the American church because the American church believes we have the ability. But the only way we believe we have the ability is by doing what? By, re- by rewriting the law to a way in which we can... I mean, it's so ridiculous the way the, the game is played, okay? All right, but wait. There, it, it, there's more, okay? All right. Uh Verse 42, give to him that asks thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Once again, this goes to which issue? Possessions and money. And what does it tell you to do? If someone needs something or wants something, Give it to him. Now, come on. Is anyone good at that? Come on. Uh, that, that's, we, start, we start making what? A thousand reasons why, well, that's not, uh, I shouldn't have to do that and I shouldn't have. We always have our reasons why we shouldn't help, right? We always have our reasons. And we would even argue that we're exercising judgment and good prudence and we're being good stewards. The text just simply says what? Now, immediately, whatever else we want to do with the text, it immediately is demonstrating in two parts there that our relationship to possessions and money should not be one of what? Holding on to, but we should be very ready to do what? to let go. Now, immediately, that, that already should make us a little uncomfortable. Right? That should at least make us a little uncomfortable because we're only in Matthew. Right? We got a long ways to go. Right? 
That already should make us a little uncomfortable because we, I, I mean, just think about our lives. How much of our life is spent working in order to get money? We spend a good portion of our lives working to get money, do we not? So we have, when it comes to possessions and money, we have to begin to ask at least this question. What is our mindset and attitude towards money and possessions? What is it? Is it? Do we have the same attitude towards money and possessions as lost people do? And I say that most people in the church are, have very similar mindset to people outside the church. I don't know if there's a radical difference between the two. Do we not, do we not work to get money? Yes, we work to get money, obviously, right? Do, do many, many Christians work to save and invest so that they have money to leave to the next generation? Yes. Do, do we not purchase things? Yes. Do we not own possessions? Yes. We're very similar, right? In other words, we can try to act like we're so different, but when you look at us and lost people, and so what we always try to typically do in the church is just say, well, it's my, my attitude towards money is different. I don't love money. Um, and, but I, you know, I, yes, I use it and I enjoy things, but it, I just, it doesn't own me. It's always good to make some kind of claim like that, right? You don't really know until <laughs> someone wants what you have, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's always easy to talk a big game until yeah, something happens, right? Then they, go, they say to go to Matthew chapter 6. I want to say they, I just I borrowed from, I just looked up as many different uh, sites saying, give me verses about money and possessions. And these are some of the ones that were most commonly mentioned. I know I'm probably missing some, um, but I didn't want to, I didn't want us to do our typical thing, trying to find all the verses and look. So we'll, we'll see. All right. The next one is Matthew chapter six. Where are we still at? Sermon on the Mount, all right? Verse 1, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, what's the main concept here? It's not so much about money, but it says that if we do anything, if we give or do good, if we help someone, if we do something good, what should we not be looking for? Recognition. We shouldn't be looking for any thank you, recognition, acknowledgement. In fact, we should basically do it in which way? Private and anonymously. That's, that's the real goal. All right? But once again, the implication seems to be that we will at least be doing what? Helping. We're going to be doing, we're going to be helping. We're going to be giving. Like, that seems to be the implication because he's giving rules on what to do when we do it. It's, it's almost just expected, right? Okay. All right, Matthew 6, 21. Well, let's go up to, let's go to verse 19, right, for context here. All right. You ready? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Now start right, stop right there. What are we not to lay up treasures where? Where are we not to lay up treasures at? On earth. Now what does it mean to lay up treasures on earth? What do you think that means? We're told specifically not to do it. What do you think that means? Possessions? Yeah. We're not to lay up any treasures. Now, the key is whenever you read that, does anyone ever stop to ask themselves what that actually is supposed to look like from a practical standpoint? Like how, how, I mean, when you're not to lay up any treasures for yourself on earth, are you to just renounce any possessions? Not own anything? I mean, I'm saying... Yeah, I know, exactly, right. So, like, what does it exactly mean? Okay, well, well, there may be an attitude there, but it, you see, to say there's an attitude, that's always the easy part to pull off, right? Because if I say it's an attitude, I can just say, I can have all of this, but trust me, I've got the right attitude. How do you know, how do you know if you have the right attitude? 
when you don't have anything. Right? Like I'm saying, as long as you've got it, you can claim you have the right attitude. Like nobody, you can all claim, oh, I have all of these things, but I have the right attitude. How do you know you have the right attitude? Right? It's easy to have the right attitude when, when everything's great, right? Right. All right. So, okay. So, we're, do we draw a distinction between needs? And, so, laying up treasure means anything that goes beyond a need. Right? Well, how many, how many of us possess things that go beyond our needs? I don't, I don't have anything that goes beyond my needs. Everything I have is just barely meeting my needs. In fact, I don't even know if my needs are being met. Okay? Just look at my stereo equipment. That's not meeting my needs. Okay. Do I? We'll get there. Okay, yeah, we're, we're going to get, we're going to try to get to everyone in the New Testament that mentions it, and that one definitely is coming up, okay? Um, so, but what I want to show you is just right there, there's a, there would be lots of difficulty in how to put that into effect, would it not? Like I say, if we go with an attitude, everyone can claim they're meeting the attitude, right? Everyone can claim they're meeting an attitude. They could live in a, a, a $50 million mansion and just say, well, my attitude is right. You know, my, my attitude is good. Right? I have the right attitude. Everyone can say that, right? So I mean, it's like, it's easy to say, it's easy to say, Jesus is all I need when you have a million things, right? It's a difficult, it's, it's much more real when all of those things you have are gone and all you're left with is Jesus. And then you're like, all I need is Jesus. It's, you rarely say all I need is Jesus when all you have left is Jesus, you start thinking, I need, well, I need, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this, right? It's like, it's like, hey, all I need is this. Well, wait a minute, I, I also need this, and well, I need this, and well, I need this, and I need, like, all of a sudden you start realizing all the other things you need. Like, that, that attitude, it, it's, it's, it's just kind of self-deceiving. We can convince ourselves we have such a right attitude. But I'm just saying right there, just this verse itself I don't know if anyone ever has a good idea what it means not to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Right? Now, in the early church, what did many do? They gave up all their possessions. Took a vow of what? Poverty. Didn't own anything. Now, ask someone to do that. And they'll be like, well, that's not what the Bible's teaching. Well, at some point in church history, people thought that's what the Bible was teaching, okay? So, so guess what? Yeah, isn't, it, isn't it funny how quickly we can say that's not what the Bible is teaching when it's something that we don't want to do? And we can all do that in every area, right? We, we, get, we get very, like, we've already talked about it. Uh, resist not evil. Turn the other cheek. If someone does something to you, do good unto them. Love even your enemy, Right? It's not an eye for an eye. Truth. If I start, and as soon as I start trying to say what that means, what typically, what typically gets me in trouble, if I take any of those verses and apply it to guns, immediately I'm going to get pushed back going, that's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. If someone breaks into my house, I can kill them. I have a right to do so. Right? And, and, and that's still loving my enemy. Right? And if you immediately call that into question, they'll get mad. Isn't it amazing? How as soon as a scripture comes up against us, we will rewrite the scripture so that we can do it. But then when we see other people do it, if we see someone take the Bible and say, well, I don't believe the Bible condemns homosexuality. You're like, what is wrong with you? Well, uh, they could say, well, what is wrong with you? Because they could point a lot of scriptures to us going, you don't follow that. Right? I, I, what I want you to see is that there's a struggle within all of us to do what? There's a struggle within all of us to not rewrite the scripture so that it is more conducive to the way we think. We're all, we're all, we all do that, okay? Well, yeah. Well, 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's what we're going to see, and we're going to see how that's going to all fit into the uh, to the passage we're going to be looking at in a minute. All right, so we know this. We're not to lay up for ourselves treasures upon earth. We still don't know exactly what that means, but we're not to do it, right? Okay, all right, next. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. Now, immediately, we have to ask ourselves, okay, we, we had a hard enough time defining what? What it means to lay up treasures on earth. Nobody really had a good definition of that, right? Okay, because some, we immediately we started trying to draw a distinction between needs and, and beyond needs. Okay, so I can have all my needs, but that's not laying up for treasure. So, like, we, we can get into a long discussion about that. Well, this becomes even more complicated. Instead of laying up treasures on earth, where are you supposed to be laying up your treasures? Okay, what does that mean to lay up treasures in heaven? What does that even look like? How do you lay up treasures in heaven? Now, once again, this is, a, this is a concept that we need some kind of understanding because this may come into play in the passage that we're going to be, that, that some believe is the most difficult passage in the entire Bible. What does it mean to lay up a treasure in heaven? How do you do that? How can you lay up a treasure in heaven today? Specifically, give me some, a specific thing you can do. Okay, we could say evangelism, all right? I guess we could say evangelism. Some people will say living out your Christian life in a godly way. Some may say prayer. Some may say Bible study. It's going to be a lot of, it typically comes into a lot of actions that are related to the kingdom of God versus actions that are related to things on this earth, right? That's That's a generic way of putting it. Now, everyone will say amen to that. But how much of your life, Monday through Sunday, is dedicated to doing things directed to the kingdom of God versus things directed towards your own self, life, health, food, money? We don't even come close, right? If we were to measure it out, where is most of our focus and attention at? Laying up something on earth, right? So immediately we know, again, once again, the Sermon on the Mount is going to demonstrate what? Our inability to do this, right? That's why you have to at least, we have to approach this that way. All right, what verse was that? That's 20. All right, now look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So whatever whatever you treasure, basically what is another way of paraphrasing this? What you treasure is what you love. And we're supposed to love God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. You know how, he, and again, I, uh, I received a, I don't remember which message I did. I think it was, it may have been YouTube. It may have been an email. I don't remember where it was. But uh, someone went after me again because, you know, you preach this weak, pathetic Christianity that everyone's incapable of doing this. But by the Holy Spirit, we can love God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. We can love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, everyone talks such a big game in an email. I get so sick of that. Because I guarantee if I look at their life, you know what I'm going to see? What they treasure is where their heart is. And where do you think most of their focus and time in their life is spent? On, their, on things on this earth. So I can demonstrate that where your treasure is, where your heart is. Unless they live in a monastery. And they probably wouldn't have been emailing me. Right? Okay, <laughs> maybe, but the, the point is, it's like you, you can just, you can just, I get so tired of hearing Christians love to talk such a big game that they can do it, they can do it, they can do it, when everything, right there, we're all condemned, are we not? Where your treasure is, is where your heart is, I guarantee I can figure out where your treasure is. How can I figure out where your treasure is? What do you spend more focus on, more time on, more energy, more money on? I guarantee I can start figuring out where, what things you focus on, right? Even, even, in a, in a, even in the most legalistic church, even in the most legalistic church, people give how much of their income to the things of God? 10%. That's 90% going where? To something else. Rarely do you see 60% of your income should be given to the things of God. If, you, if someone even mentioned that, they would call that a cult, right? But wait a minute. So, 60, so, so 90% of all of I have can somehow be focused on me 
but supposedly I'm going to tell you that what I truly treasure is God? Right? You're going to have a hard time proving that, right? Once again, it's easy to claim something. It's, the claim always, sooner or later, the claim always comes to, to a head-on collision with what? Reality. Right? I can, you can tell, you can walk around telling everyone, I love to be healthy. I love to work out. I love, but sooner or later, the reality, someone's going to know the reality, right? Uh, you don't go to a gym. You eat like trash. Sooner or later, guess what's going to show up? The reality. Even if it's not weight, the reality, right? The, the reality is just going to show. We can say a big game about, oh, we, we treasure Jesus. Jesus is all I need. We can raise our hands during praise and worship and say, Jesus is all I need. And while we go get in our, you know, $20,000 car, drive to our $100,000 home and watch a, you know, $2,000 television set. Oh, but Jesus is all I need, right? It's. Yeah, well, yeah, probably more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. I, I'm not in counting inflation, but you get the idea. It, it, it's, it's, the point is we all, we can pretty much figure out where we, what we treasure. And we, once we figure out what we treasure, that's where our heart is. Now, immediately, some would then say, that proves what? You're not saved. I will argue once again that this is Jesus demonstrating where is our heart always at? On any, any, everything else other than God. We, don't, we do not treasure God. And if we even try to pretend that we treasure God, we're lying to ourselves. Right? Because we always like to pretend that we can treasure God while the reality is we treasure everything else. Okay, then he goes on to say, But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and... You cannot serve God and... Mammon. Right? Or, another way of putting that, you cannot serve God and... Money. Now, immediately, that... we. People will preach that in church and everybody will like, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to do this. The reality is, do we, do we constantly find ourselves trying to do what? Serve two masters. And we fall short. So once again, I, I, I'm going to continue to say this. I, the only way I can interpret the Sermon on the Mount is that is law, which immediately tells me what? I can't do it. But guess what? Who didn't serve two masters? Christ. So in Christ, his obedience to this is imputed to me by faith. So by faith, I do obey this and practice. Give me a break. Any, any claim that if you meet Christians who claim that they do those things, they're just, they're, they're delusional. They, they need help. They need, to, they need to leave Christianity and they need to seek counseling because they're so delusional to think that they're actually pulling that off. Nobody pulls that off. Just look at our, their lives. Right? Okay. Um, well, we looked at all of those scriptures in Matthew, so we covered all of that. I think, that, I think that's, that gives us at least some ideas, right? Yes? Okay. Now, if you... Uh, actually, we can just keep reading because it, it only gets more complicated, does it not? If you start in verse 25, does it not get more complicated by the time we get to verse 34? Therefore, I say unto you, take no... Thought for your life, what shall you eat or what shall you drink, nor yet for your body, what shall you put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Now immediately that tells us we should not be doing what? Now depending on your translations, the NIV translates verse 25 in what way? Don't worry. All right? So we're not to be anxious. We're not to worry. We're not to be preoccupied. That, now when it says, that, guess what? We're not even talking about... Uh, wants now. We're talking about needs now. Is that not what he's talking about in verse 25? Right? So we're not even to be preoccupied, worry, or filled with anxiety, and even getting our needs met. We're not even supposed to be worried about that. How much time of your spent, how much of your life is spent just trying to get your basic needs met? 
Now, you can say, well, I'm not worried about it. I'm not anxious about it. Well, <laughs> once again, it's easy to make that claim. How do you test that, right? Verse 26, behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feed them. Are you not much better than they? This seems to imply what? And now this is where this becomes a very complicated verse, because what does that seem to imply? You don't need to worry about it because God's going to meet your needs. Well, that's easy to say. Just stop working and see how well that works out. Right? I mean, I've talked about this before, and anytime I bring it up, people get mad at me, but, you know, thousands of people starve to death every day in the world. Every single day, people starve to death in this world. It's crazy. The numbers are in the thousands. People die without having clean drinking water every single day in this world. That never changes. And people, and as soon as you say that, Christians get mad at you. But it's just a reality that we have to face. I don't know how you reconcile that, but there you go. Next verse. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take thought for a raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toll not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Seemingly to imply I don't even need to work, right? I can just lay back like a, a, a flower and I'll be clothed, Right? Okay, we know it doesn't work that way, correct? All right, wherefore, if God uh, so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Seemingly to imply that our problem is we don't have enough faith. If we just have enough faith, we would do what? I don't need to worry about all this other stuff. I'm going to focus my life on what? On the things of God, and all all of these things will be met. Well, we know it doesn't work that way. Do you know how many times I get a phone call a week or an email from some missionary? And guess what they've been spending three years trying to do? Raise money to go where? To the mission field. And so they have to go from church to church to church. And they come to a church. And even if we brought them to the church, I hate the whole system because what happens? Then as a small church, we hand them $500, $600. And all we're doing is giving them money to do what? Go to the next city. And then maybe we'll throw in, say, we're going to now give them $25 or $50 a month, but we spent $600 just to get them to the next city. The whole thing is a ridiculous system. The whole system is ridiculous. But I can tell you this, if they don't go on deputation, are they ever getting to the mission field? Right, well, that's... <laughs> right? And they got to get all that money so they can do what? Take care of their family. Like, the whole system... Which is, I don't, I, I don't know how you interpret these verses, but these verses have led to much controversy within, uh, you know, the history. Uh, Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. Now, immediately, Jesus is trying to show a dim. There should be supposed to be a difference between whom? Well, the believers and the unbelievers, because Gentiles are typically used as a basically a, a word to reference whom? The lost. So there's supposed to be a difference between God's children and the, the dogs, the unbelievers. And where is this difference supposed to be? And how we ap- approach which, sub, which things? Forget treasures. How we even meet, how we approach even our needs. That we are not, what are we not to be doing? Worrying about needs. We're not to even be worried about it. We're just, we're supposed to be okay about it. How many Christian marriages fall apart over fights over money? But we're not even supposed to be worried about it. How, do, how does that even show up in your life? I'm not sure I know how. And then what does he go on to say? For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. In other words, you don't need to worry about it because God knows you need these things. You stop worrying about it. You stop being obsessed over it. You don't worry about it. God's going to meet your needs. The Gentiles, the lost people, why are they worried about it? Because they don't have a heavenly Father who's going to meet their needs. So they have to run around worrying about it while we get to kick back and do what? According to this text, what's the only way to read this text? As we kick back and we don't have to worry about it because who's going to meet all of our needs? God. Now we all know somehow this, the way this is presented doesn't seem to translate where? 
into our lives. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. I, look, if you ask me, you could ask me a thousand times, what does that look like in everyday life? I have no clue what that even means. I have no idea. I know anytime I criticize it, anytime I challenge it, Christians get mad at me. But I get tired of Christians reading this like, hey, we don't need to worry about anything. God's going to meet your needs. And then I can look up on my iPad here in about five seconds about how many people starve to death every day in this world. And I have a hard time reconciling that human beings are dying of starvation while supposedly God's going to meet our needs. So then you have to come to some kind of conclusion. All the people who starve to death are not believers. Right? The whole thing becomes a, pro- a problematic. What's the next verse? This is a key verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things should be added unto you. Seemingly to imply that what, what, what do we have to focus on? Seeking first the kingdom of God. Seeking first the kingdom of God. And then all these other things will just magically seem to fall into our hands, right? And that the illustration he used? These other things don't have to... I don't know what you do with that. I don't know how... what. Look, I've struggled with in my whole Christian life. I, I cannot stand this part of the Sermon on the Mount because I don't know what to do with this. I don't know. I have no clue what to do with it because I don't know how you translate it into real world. When, when, when an atheist or a skeptic discovers this verse and they start tearing Christianity apart, Christians just get offended. Stop getting offended and realize they have a good point, do they not? Because I don't know what to say to them. But I know, who, who, who thinks that they seek first the kingdom of God? This is supposed to be seeking, look, put that in its context. You're supposed to be seeking first the kingdom of God over what? Your needs. Now, how could you measure that you're seeking the kingdom of God over your needs? How could you even measure this? Well, then it would, the way you would measure it is that your time, your focus, your energy, everything is focused on what? The kingdom, spiritual, and not on the material. How much of your life is focused on working and, and, and the material? Give me a break. That's what most of our life is focused on, is it not? I, I, don't, know how, I don't know how you, what you're supposed to do with this. All right, what's the next verse? Yeah, take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take a thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I, I don't know what we do with that section of scripture, but it seems to, well, one thing I know we can do with this scripture, it's implying a way of living that I will never be able to meet. I will never be able to accomplish. I'm never going to seek first the kingdom. And if anyone says they are, they're out of their minds, right? I'm not going to accomplish these things, which once again demonstrates that this is law. And my only hope is that Christ was able to meet all of these things, right? Christ was, I don't know how it's supposed to apply in the real world. I don't. I just know it's putting forth a way of thinking and living that is beyond any Christian I have ever known. And what, because I see Christians spend a lot of time worrying about money and investments and saving money. And I mean, you've got an entire industry out there from Dave Ramsey and all kinds of other people who are like helping Christians know how to manage their money. And, and what's money, 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 money. Okay, well, at some point, you're not seeking first the kingdom of God, are you? So I don't, know, I, I don't know what you do with that, but if we were to try to summarize all of this teaching, it seems to imply that as Christians, we're supposed to be very different than the lost world, and we're not supposed to be worried, preoccupied, filled with anxiety, or pursuing the things of this world. We're not even really supposed to be worried in pursuing our needs. What we are supposed to be is we're supposed to be so detached from it that our entire life is focused on God. Even if it's to our own personal hurt. Even if we we are so detached from material possessions that even if we are hurt by it, we allow ourselves to be defrauded and hurt because we are not connected to our, our, our possessions. We are focused on the kingdom of God. That is a way of life that I rarely see. I don't think I've ever seen any Christian pull that off. 
So are, are we starting to feel like maybe we're in trouble here? Okay, all right. Go to Matthew chapter 13. We're not even close. We're, we got to get through all of these before we can get to the other passage. I know my approach to this is nobody else would do it this way, but that's okay. Matthew chapter 13. All right. We'll see if we can. This, is, this one may not be the easiest one to figure out, but we'll work through it, okay? All right, I'm going to go to 18 so that we can see where this is taking place. All right, Matthew 13, 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. So we have a parable here, okay? All right. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understand it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth the way that which was sown in his heart, that is he which received seed by the wayside. So the, 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 the word of God is preached and Satan tries to come and do what? Still it away, all right? But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receive it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, for wherein tribulation or persecution ariseth, because the word by and by is he offended. He is offended. He also that receiveth seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. Now, now this is the one they want us to focus on. So we got the parable. So now someone receives the seed. Among the thorns, he heareth the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. What causes this person to become unfruitful? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. How does the NIV translate it? The deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of riches. So what are two things that can lead someone to be unfruitful? We're not even going to get into a never-ending debate about who's saved in this passage and who's not saved. That's another lordship salvation issue. We won't ever get into that. But what can lead someone to being unfruitful? And the being unfruitful here is being unfruitful spiritually. We can clearly understand that, right? So what can lead to someone being unfruitful from a spiritual place? Worries of this world, which would typically deal with what? Your job, your career, family, money, possessions, right? And then the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. I think every translation calls them deceitful, right? King James, the NIV, the deceitfulness of riches. How are riches deceitful? What makes them deceitful? This is a key. This this may be very key here. Maybe, I, I just know there's somehow riches are deceitful, meaning then this gives us our first clue that when it comes to money or wealth, there's a possible very negative thing connected with it. In other words, there is a negativity that we're not supposed to be attached to it. We're supposed to be seeking first the kingdom of God, right? <coughs> I'm going to lose my voice here but also that there's an element to them that just are deceitful in and of themselves, which can have major negative spiritual consequences. So money can have negative spiritual consequences. All right. Now, what's the question? Well, how much money leads to the negative consequences? Poor? Middle class? Wealthy, rich, like where are you economically and how is it having negative consequences upon one's spiritual life? That... But most people don't get so caught up in the deceitfulness of riches here in this passage. Everyone gets focused on this passage and who's the saved person and who's the lost person, right? And so basically only one person in here is saved and everyone else is lost. But then they never bother to go, well, wait a minute, if all these other people are lost, then... Yeah, nobody ever takes it to its logical conclusion because then 99% of the church would be what? Lost, right? So, yeah, we won't get into the never-ending debate over this passage, okay? Because, well, 
I, I mean, if you want, MacArthur's got, I think, an entire chapter dedicated to it in the gospel according to Jesus. Okay, but we won't go there for now, all right? Uh, that's Matthew 13. Go to Matthew 19. We're going to run out of time. Go to Matthew 19. Oh, boy. The famous passage, right? Okay, uh, look at verse 16. Matthew 19, 16. This is one of the most famous passages, right? It's had, it's had massive impact in church history, right? Matthew 19, 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, again, what makes this passage so difficult is what, would we, what do we want as Protestants, as non-Catholics, what would do we want Jesus to say immediately after that question is asked? What do we want, if we're honest, as non-Catholics, what do we want Jesus to say right there? You don't have to do anything. It's not by works. It's by grace. That's what we want Jesus to say, because would that not resolve 2,000 years of conflict in Christianity? But does Jesus say, you don't have to do anything? Oh, man, no. You talk about one of the most, why? You're like, Jesus, why? Why would you do this, all right? Because we could solve, we, I mean, Christianity can be unified to some level. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, Keep the commandments. Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say that? Why? Why, why do we have a passage where Jesus literally says the way to get to heaven is to keep the commandments? Why would he do that? Now, the one, and just so that you know, this has obviously caused massive problems throughout the history of Christianity, right? Okay, so Catholics will say, absolutely, you have to keep the commandments. But even Catholics are smart enough to know what? Nobody's going to, right? So what do we need? We need the sacraments. We need all all the sacraments, including being able to be forgiven of our sins. We need confession. We need all of that, right? We need penance. We need need all. And we need purgatory, right? So at least even they are willing to admit, well, if he says to do it, there's no way anybody's going to be able to do it. So we're going to need a whole lot of help, right? We got to break things into uh, to mortal and venial sins. We need sacraments. We need the church. We need purgatory. We need people praying people out of purgatory. We got to have a lot going. Even they admit it. Now, in some ways, they're far, far more honest than whom? Than we are. Because what's our approach? Okay? Our approach is we don't keep it to get saved. We keep it to prove we are saved. And how can we keep it? Because now we're Christians, we have the ability to keep it. But then wait for a second. Then there's a dramatic pause. And then they say, see the fine print. You won't be able to do it perfectly. So I don't know how imperfect obedience to the commandments would be enough to prove that I'm saved. Because Jesus just says, what do I have to do? Keep them. And if he says keep them, he means to keep them what way? Perfectly, so I, like this whole system, like this is where I sometimes I just stand back and look at Christianity. I'm like, I don't understand one, I, don't, I think you, all of them, I think everybody's crazy because it makes no sense to me. He says, keep it. We say he didn't mean it. He didn't really mean it. Or we believe he meant it and then we do all kinds of weird things with it, right? So here, here's, let's, let's see what happens, all right? What verse was that? Verse 17. So then the person who's going to, now this person immediately realized that you can almost feel that immediately the person's like, oh, wait, I didn't want to hear that, right? Keep the commandments. So immediately does what? Which, right? Because he wants to limit the number that I have to keep, right? Now, I don't blame him. I don't blame him because he immediately is like, whoa, 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 whoa. When you say the commandments, are you talking just the 10? Are you talking all of those commandments in the Old Testament? And even if you break it down to the 10, do you think we could just find some specific ones? Right? I mean, come on. You can't blame the man for asking this question, can you? I mean, come on. I would be asking the same question. So then what does Jesus say? He names a couple of them, right? Thou shalt not... Thou shalt not murder, 
Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He just throws out a couple, right? And then immediately the young man said, All these things I've kept from my youth, up what lack I yet? I've kept all of these. Now we know immediately, even if he kept these externally, we know that Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount proved that these go to an internal reality, meaning that nobody has kept these. We've murdered in our heart. We've committed adultery in our heart. We can go through all of these, right? We have stolen. We have bore, definitely, we've bore, I guarantee we've, we've bear false witness. Maybe some of you have been good at honoring father and mother. Don't even get me started on that one. All right. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as ourselves. We're in immediate trouble right there because we don't love anyone like we love ourselves, right? Okay, all right. Verse 20, so then he asked, then Jesus said unto him, if thou will be perfect, please note, if thou will be perfect, why does Jesus say if thou will be perfect? Well, because Jesus, the law demands perfection. Yeah, Jesus just said, what do you have to do to keep my commandments? How do you have to keep them then? Perfectly. Now, I, this is for everyone you know who holds to lordship salvation. You demand of them perfection. Don't let them play their little game where they say, oh, this, this, you do this to prove that you're saved. Well, then you know what you have to do to prove you're saved? Perfection. Anything less than perfection, you prove you're lost. Don't let the lordship people play their little games with this passage. And I can, we can take apart MacArthur's entire approach to this text. It's complete, utter trash. I'm not even going to be nice about it. Because the game you play is, oh, no, no, no. You do this to prove you're saved, right? No, no. Jesus just said you have to be perfect. And is that the first time Jesus has mentioned perfection? No, he mentioned it in the Sermon on the Mount. And then later on, what are we told in Peter? Be ye holy as I am holy. Nobody pulls that off. If someone says your life proves that you're saved, then you tell them, then you better prove to me you're perfect. And if you know them, probably within 5.2 seconds, they'll know that it's up. Because anyone arguing with you, if you know them, you're going to immediately go, you're not perfect. Well, I don't have to be perfect. According to whom? Right? All right. If thou will be perfect, then what is he telling me to do? Go and sell thou that thou hast and give to the poor that thou shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now immediately we got the treasure in heaven part. What did Jesus just say to earn treasure in heaven you have to do? Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now by selling everything you have and give to the poor, what are you demonstrating? He just gave some commandments a little while ago. You're demonstrating you love your neighbor as yourself. If you love someone like you love yourself, would you not be willing to give them everything you have? Right? He just says, sell everything. Now, immediately by telling him to sell everything, what is he saying to show me? To show me that you love whom what? what? You love God and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And you don't love money. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then do what? You'll store up treasures in heaven. Now, that scares me to death. Right? Because what am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be sure. If if, if for me to store up a treasure in heaven, I have to sell everything I have to give to the poor, I'm in trouble. I'm going to have zero treasure in heaven. None. Right? So what does, the, what does this young man do? But when the young man heard that, saying he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Does Jesus stop him and say, come back, just say this prayer. Now this is one of the most troubling passages in all the Bible. Like the one we're getting ready to look at is the most difficult. This is the most troubling because Jesus shows, the, like what kind of evangelism is this? And so what does Jesus say? 
I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And then what does, when the disciples hear this, what is their question? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Now, what some people mean, seem to think that that means is that, that you, it requires God to change your heart so that then this is what happens. That this demonstrates that when you get ready to come to Christ, you must be willing to do what? You must have an attitude that you give up everything to God. But that's one of those games we play where we say this requires that attitude. That is, that is ridiculous. Does Jesus say have the, the attitude? No, he says sell everything. So immediately, what is this? How, should, how do I interpret this? This demonstrates that what does the law demand? Perfection. What can I not ever produce? Perfection. So then guess what? God has to save me because only one person ever was perfect, which is Christ. And by putting my faith in him, his obedience is to me. But immediately, what does this seem to demonstrate about money? Once again, that I'm, I, I should have an attitude that, that will be willing to give it all up. Now, immediately, what we've seen so far is every passage about money seems that there must be a radical difference between us and the world. And that our attitude towards money, we should be detached from it, disinterested in it not caring about it and be willing to give up anything and everything, even to our own personal hurt for the benefit of others and for the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know, just summarizing that, what, what, where do you, what do you feel? I feel like, oh, me. Now, this makes me very nervous because remember, and I'll have to stop right here, what scripture did we just stop at? Um, uh, Matthew 19? Okay, all right. Okay, Matthew 19. So we're done with Matthew. Okay, we'll start in the next hour in Mark. But listen, let me go back to this, all right? Listen carefully. Remember the hypotheses that has been put forth about a passage of Scripture that many believe is the most difficult passage in all the Bible to interpret. The hypotheses was what? How did I begin this hour? Does everybody remember the hypotheses I gave at the beginning? We need to use money well in order to enter into eternal life. Okay, right. That's one hypothesis. Now, I'm not saying that the hypothesis is right to the passage, but I'm saying you could see maybe why this person would say something like that. Because all of these other passages seem to imply... That if we, we have to use money well in order to do what? Have eternal life, right? Isn't that what these passages seem to be implying? Yes? In fact, someone wants to know how to have eternal life and what does Jesus tell him to do? Use your money well, sell everything you have so that you may have eternal life. And even if you say, well, no, 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 no. These passages don't show you what you have to do to get it. What is going to be the lordship approach? These passages show what you must do to prove you got it. Well, if, if this proves what I got it, then what, what, what would be the proof of one's salvation? Your detachment from money. Your disinterest in money. Because your focus is on what? You're seeking first the kingdom of God. You're laying up treasures Where? There, in heaven, you, you're so detached from it that you would give up everything for someone else. Well, nobody, if that's proof of salvation, there is no one I have ever met who's saved. So immediately we should start feeling like, well, wait a minute. How then, what do we do with money? And how does money relate to salvation? Because all of these scriptures at least seem to link it to salvation to some degree, does it not? Well, now I'm getting really nervous. So what passage could this person be referencing that seems to, that they think seems to indicate, I got to use my money well in order to get into eternal life. Even if you say, well, that hypothesis has to be wrong. Well, I just gave us some passages that would seem to connect it to eternal life, would it not? So then you're like, well, then what do I do? What do I do? Now, 
Hopefully at this point, you're probably like, I'm so, so glad you like Lutheranism because Lutheranism says this just shows what we can't do and that Christ did it, right? But we'll have to, we'll have to stop there. All right, we'll stop. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning, Lord, as we have just begun to lay the foundation for studying a very difficult passage. Lord, I pray that we will stay dedicated to this and committed to this so that we can understand this passage correctly and try to avoid any of the misinterpretation. If there's one thing we've all probably been convicted about, hopefully this morning, is that our attitude towards money probably is nowhere close to what you call for and demand. All we can say is forgive us, and we're thankful that in your son, we have some form of obedience positionally because practically we all fall short. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,